Since Russia invaded Ukraine, the State Department estimates that 900,000 Ukrainians have forcibly relocated to Russia. And of course, with that many, many thousands would be children and young people. And Daniel was a teenager when he was forcibly taken to Babylon. We don't know if his parents were killed or captured. We don't know <clears throat> even if they had survived, if he ever saw them again. And I want to contemplate what life was like for Daniel for a few minutes and to think about it in terms of two really key life phases. And of course, I don't know for certain some of this because the Bible doesn't record all these events. I'll talk about what we know for certain, but there's some things that we can assume because when you think about how humans operate and humans are always going to be the same, it would be hard to believe that what I'm going to describe did not happen. What we know for certain was that Daniel, along with a group of elite young Jews, was taken into the hostile king's government training program. They were given Babylonian names and trained to be experts in Babylonian language and culture. And that culture, like most cultures in history, had religious foundations. So he would have had to learn Babylonian polytheism, idolatry, magic, superstitions, along with their form of government. Daniel was given, we read in scripture preferential treatment over the other exiles he rejected at least the food portion but he would have had amenities that the rest of his people would not have had most of the jews were likely living in a kind of refugee camp because tens of thousands of foreigners showing up would not have had access to good permanent housing daniel was housed by the king's court so imagine you're in one of these camps standing in a bread line or in a water distribution site at this long long line and you hear some people talking about daniel and you listen in and you hear Daniel's pathetic. He took a pagan name. He's learning pagan religion. He's given into a pagan government so he can be comfortable. He is an unfaithful, self-serving sellout. Children are told stories in a tense series of how Daniel's compromised his faith and how they should not be like him. Probably the exact opposite of what our children learn regarding Daniel and Superchurch. Meanwhile, from Scripture, we see that Daniel was faithfully and without doubt great difficulty navigating living his faith in the midst of a hostile king's regime. I'm quite sure during those early days in Babylon, Daniel was not a hero to his people. And then he takes a leading role in that hostile government. Now he's somebody really to be despised. So imagine a Ukrainian forced into Russia who then assists Putin and takes a seat in his government. How would Ukrainians feel about that person? You can, you can read some news reports and see how they would feel. They would, they would execute him if they could. And don't think Daniel's own people wouldn't have done the same to him given the chance. So now, fast forward 65 years in the future, Daniel's an old man. All those who are old when he was taken into captivity are now long dead. And Daniel has to take a stand of conscience against the new conquering government of Persia. And by now, people have largely accumulated to the culture. Most of them alive had been born in Babylon. Most of them never even, had, never even seen Judah. They have homes there. They have businesses there. They've married Babylonians. In fact, they're so acclimated that the original 70 years of exile that God had promised were now going to be extended because they did not learn to be faithful to God in that hostile culture. They had been submerged in it. God's promises in Scripture, both of blessings and judgment, are often conditional. If you, then I will. If you don't, then I will not. Not all of them, but many of them are. And in Daniel 9, in, in Daniel's pleading with God, can we go home now? Is it time? And a word to restore and build Jerusalem comes, verse 25, but rebuilding the city would not bring all of God's restoration promises to pass right away. Most importantly, the high notes of what the prophets foretold 
would not occur until the distant future when the kingdom of Christ would come. But they had not been faithful during the exile. Many of them had, had not learned from God's severe mercy. And so now, back to imagining what Daniel's life might look like at this later stage. So we can imagine in his teens and early 20s, he was a sellout, he was a compromiser, he was a collaborator, he was a liberal. And now in his 80s, he's out of step with the times. He's a conservative, legalist, fundamentalist, whatever. We know that the people, unlike Daniel, had become of the world, not just in the world. Daniel had done the hard work of remaining faithful to God while navigating a hostile culture. Many of the people had become unfaithful to God and had joined wholesale into that culture. And they were unable to change it because they were too much a part of it. You can't change what you're addicted to. And again, not that changing the world is the goal, but being faithful is. And faithfulness is how the world has changed. And you can't love the world and remain faithful to it at the same time. So while his people are surrendering and being submerged into a hostile culture, Daniel, Daniel is quietly remaining faithful even as circumstances and even whole governments around him change. And so now the, the, the crowd, the people, his people have acclimated to Babylon and they hear that old man Daniel refuses to stop praying to God as a new law demands that he must. And I can imagine these kind of conversations now as they're not in bread lines, but they're sitting in their shops and their homes. He's so dogmatic, he can't even go just 30 days without praying. Why can't he pray to his God and to the king? I mean, come on, does he really believe all that Ten Commandments stuff? That was like a thousand years ago. He needs to get with times. And how can an old document that some old shepherd was supposedly given on a mountain by God apply to us here in Babylon? How can that have any meaning in these modern times? How can he believe that stuff? I mean, it's the 6th century B.C. And so Daniel the liberal, who was faithful in culture as a young man, is now Daniel the fundamentalist who won't go along to get along. But Daniel was, in fact, the same guy all the way through. He didn't play for the crowd at 17 or at 80. His aim was to be found faithful. We're in a, a short series. We're finishing today from Daniel. Don't try to change the world. Just be faithful. Be faithful in the small times, hard times, and today in the waiting times. At the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's king, and he lost his mind for years, lived like an animal because he had put himself above God and God judged him. He had humbled himself and God restored him. At the beginning of chapter 5, his son Belshazzar is king, and he's given a huge banquet for a thousand of the who's who in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had been a warrior king. He was a general before he was a ruler. He had led the famous battle of Carchemish in 605 where they whipped the Egyptians and their allies. Belshazzar was a banquet king. He was really good at throwing parties. So even while his enemies were at the city gates, he's partying. Let me read from chapter 5. Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, meaning they were drunk, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines can drink from them. They brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his wives, nobles, and concubines drank from them. And they drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. These objects had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem, and now they were using them to, um, in idolatry. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale. His thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. So much for his pride. 
The king shouted to bring in the mediums, the Chaldeans, which would have just been wise men, magicians. And he said to these wise men in Babylon, whoever reads this inscription, gives me its interpretation, will be clothed in purple, which was a very expensive cloth, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So they're all rushing in there to try to interpret this, and none of them could. Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale. His nobles were bewildered. And the queen says, hey, there was this guy. Your father trusted him. He might be able to help. So get him, whimpers the party king. And Daniel's brought before the king and is asked, Are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard you have the spirit of gods in you, that you have wisdom. None of my wise guys can tell me what this means, but if you tell me, I'll reward you. Verse 17, Daniel said, You can keep your gifts and, keep, and give your rewards to someone else, but I'll read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. And the interpretation is, you're a dead man. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede, also known historically as, as Cyrus, received the kingdom. <clears throat> and while the leaders were partying, the Persians were diverting the Euphrates River upstream, and then the army entered the city through the riverbed. Cyrus's tomb in Iran is, is visited by thousands each year. Have you ever been there, Mo, to his tomb? You guys, Mo and Kathy? Kathy has? Okay. It's still a, a place where thousands of, of Iranians go. He's still a national hero. Daniel, now an old man, becomes a lead guy for the Persian government and is set up by jealous politicians. And this leads to the famous Lion's Den rescue we talked about last week. But the point today is faithfulness in the waiting times. And where do we see that in Daniel? Largely in the white spaces, for instance, between chapter 4 and 5. In chapter 4, Daniel's the top guy in Nebuchadnezzar's government, very involved in his life at a personal level. And this would be like a pastor being invited into the White House. It'd be pretty heady stuff, or could be. And this has happened many times. Billy Graham was pastor to many presidents, Bill Hybels. And I don't judge these men for doing that. Presidents need pastors too, but they better be careful and not become overly impressed by the power of it all. Chuck Colson used to say, salvation is not coming on Air Force One. When you look at Proverbs 23, 1, when you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you have a big appetite. Don't desire his choice food, for that food is deceptive. The idea in Proverbs is don't be taken in by the extravagance of these human power brokers. Don't let your appetite for fame set you up for a fall. And Daniel doesn't fall for it. Now, he's in the inner workings of the highest level of the largest government in the world, in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, the new king doesn't even know who he is. The queen has to remind him. What happened in that white space between 4 and 5? A new king came and would soon go. Daniel, meanwhile, we know from Scripture, has been getting on his knee three times a day to give thanks to God. Because we find out as an old guy, he's going to keep that long habit up. So he'd slipped out of the spotlight. He was put on the shelf. But when he's recalled into action, he's ready. So when Daniel's pulled off the shelf, he's unimpressed by the king's flattery. He rejects the king's offer of gifts and rewards. He won't be bought. He honors God, and he's not afraid to speak boldly to the king. So he said to, to Belshazzar, you can keep your gifts, but remember, Nebuchadnezzar was given greatness and power. All people were terrified by him. He could kill whoever he wanted, keep alive who he wanted. This is the guy Daniel had to work for. Then he tells him he became arrogant, was deposed, his glory taken from him. He lived like an animal. He turned his face to the heavens and repented, and God, God put him back in place. And he said, Belshazzar, you know all this. I mean, this was your dad. 
but you've not humbled your heart even though you knew this. Now, what Daniel didn't do, he didn't respond with, I'm back, finally back in the palace. Don't count old Daniel out yet. I'm somebody again. He was unimpressed. He wasn't trying to be impressive. He was just faithful. He had seen a powerful king humbled like a donkey. He would see the one in front of him, the one offering to buy him off, killed by a new king who would then be killed by another king. On and on and on it would go. Now, what had Daniel done in the white spaces between chapter 4 and 5? He had trained his heart to trust God. Coaches have long said, you will play like you practice. And Daniel responded like this because when he was on the shelf, he was faithful. During the waiting times, be faithful. And being faithful during those times doesn't mean count the days until God gives you something significant to do. Being faithful is always the significant thing to do. And Daniel was called up for service to another king, but he was not living for the approval of men. His heart was set on the approval of God. How many athletes, politicians, entertainers, business leaders have we seen over the years who melt down when they have to leave the limelight? I watched a a show years ago about the, the 1950s, 60s, Brat Pack, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, those guys, and you're going, Dean who? And exactly. And in this film, Dean Martin is crying, weeping. He's an old guy who used to be the handsome, the suave, and now he's nobody. He's forgotten and he's dying. These people become addicted to the applause of people, and when it moves on to someone else, they're undone. I saw a film recently where some long-retired baseball stars were brought out on the field like a living museum, and they're exalted. they exalted in having been remembered. And one who was not invited to that group of the most important living legends, was not happy about not being in that group. But one of them's dead now, and then the rest soon will be. Daniel would have none of that nonsense. He had trained his whole life to play for a crowd of one. The applause of God was what mattered to him. So if he's studying to understand a new culture, would have been, which would have been hard work, if he's in his room praying, if he's in a lion's den, if he's forgotten for years, if he's yanked back into service, it was all the same. Be faithful. My dad ran around the world for years. One year, his job took him to London 14 times, along with trips to other countries and all over our country. And he didn't love traveling, and he didn't love hotels. He spent 260 nights that year in hotels. He knew high-ranking government officials here and other places. Then fast forward, and he's by my mom's side as she spends years dying of cancer, and he, he rarely left West Wichita. He applied the same intensity to those years he did to building pipelines. Then she died. He was undone for weeks, months, years. He never really recovered. But he finally got back out in the world and mostly into the world of meeting with people, sitting beside dying men in hospitals or in coffee shops or giving away flowers and candy. Far from the, from the limelight. He was in those last years on the shelf, so to speak. But he was faithful. And he applied passion to those years like he always had Last year, at 92, he came to my house, and he said, I'm, I'm working with this guy, and I'm telling him this. What would you tell him? And I started, we were talking. He'd get a piece of paper. All right, wait. Starts writing it down. And then he died in pain, stuck in a bed. Not a jet-setting businessman. Not a guy where I used to go and see him, and there'd be people lined up outside his office. He was on the shelf, so to speak, but he was a faithful man whose days were now over. He was sometimes foolish as a young man. He was sometimes foolish as an older man. But he, and he'd be the first to tell you that. Daniel was no perfect man. 
Now, we see from Scripture he was a faithful man, but we also see from Scripture that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that he was not perfect, but he was faithful. So I want to conclude with three mental hooks to hang our thinking on. You can pick the one that you think you most need. How to be faithful during the slow times, the hard times, and the waiting times. In other words, all the time. So the first hook is be faithful means you play for an audience of one. Galatians 1.10, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I still trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul's implying here, obviously, that he used to be a people pleaser. He's not anymore. This doesn't mean you can be a contrarian, you can be arrogant, unteachable. None of that is being faithful. What it means is that as you try to listen to people, seek to understand them, try to befriend them, you seek to please God above all else. And people will disagree with you, sometimes attack you, misjudge you, misrepresent you. You might be too liberal, you might be too conservative, all in the same day. But just be faithful. Be humble, be generous, be teachable. In the end, it only matters what God thinks of you. And remember, many people, if you live a faithful life, will walk with you and will be your allies. We sometimes forget our faithful friends, our battle buddies, and pay too much attention to the one person who's against us. I've seen that. I've seen people caught up and and full of angst over this person who's not even their close friend. And meanwhile, they've got these people around them who have their back. Now, there's something wrong with a person who doesn't care what others think of them. Of course it bothers you when people malign you. But to be faithful, we have to decide, I'm going to choose to care most about what God thinks of me. And this is not an excuse to be a fool and disregard good advice. That's not faithfulness. But you can't move through life playing to this crowd and to that one, worrying about this person's criticism and to that one. Live with conviction and do it with a smile. Don't be a belligerent person of conviction. When I was younger, I had conviction, but I had conviction with a frown. And I'm learning as I get older to be a happy, convinced person. More and more care what God thinks. Second hook, being faithful means you get the key before you see the door. I had a recurring dream for many years where I was on the sidelines of a Wichita State football game. Coach yells my name, Williams, you're in, and I can't find my helmet. Coach is yelling. There are helmets everywhere. In my dream, there was just helmets everywhere. And I can't find mine, and I miss my chance. Someone else goes in. And there are variations on this dream. Maybe you find yourself in a classroom and you forgot to put on pants or study for a test. I've heard people tell me these dreams, and they, they warn us, be ready. They probably more likely betray a deep fear inside of us. Not being ready when opportunity comes. And faithfulness is about readiness. Readiness is hard because we're working to get a key to a door that we don't know will be there after all that work. Kairos was the Greek god of opportunity. And besides having an unfortunate haircut, his name <laughs> means... <laughs> but, but there's meaning in the haircut. The haircut is... A, in, this is actually a Greek word picture you can see on some, some old in, in, uh, inscribings. And kairos means the, the right time, or in the Bible it means God's time, versus chronos, which just means chronological time. And he was depicted in these Greek word pictures as having a, a long lock of hair in front and bald in the back. And he had wings, sometimes on his shoulders, sometimes on his feet, because he could move around really quickly. And the idea is that he's coming, and when he's coming, you better grab him as he comes at you, because when he goes by, there's nothing to grab, you know, it's just slick. And so it's a myth, it's a word picture, but there's truth in these, a lot of these myths and word pictures. I once had an Air Force pilot tell me that he would not do Air War College 
which is required to promote to colonel because there's no guarantee you would make colonel after all that effort. And I said, well, I, can, I can't guarantee you'll make colonel if you do Air War College. I can guarantee you won't make colonel if you don't do Air War College. And I said, he's a believer. I said, you're asking the wrong question. Not, if I do all this work, can you promise me? And what does God want you to do? What does faithfulness look like? I've had many conversations with young men who would tell me this is the kind of woman I want to marry. And I've, I've said, are you faithfully becoming the kind of man that that kind of woman you want to marry would want to marry? Or are you just hanging out and when she shows up, then you're going to go become marriable. Show me the door, then I'll work on getting the key. I want to be faithful when hard times come. When the bang happens, I want to be ready for it. Well, what are you doing left of the bang? I want to finish well. I want to die with hope and courage. Are you proactively, faithfully seeking God, putting your hope in Him, repenting when you put your hope in yourself like Jim prayed? We're all going to play in those last moments or in the hard times like we practice. And Daniel, from Scripture, we can see, was getting that universal key to any future door. You know what the universal key to any future door is? It's not going to be surprising. Be faithful today. That's the universal key for future doors. What does faithfulness today look like? Take Do Air War College? Okay. Maybe you don't get promoted, but does it matter if that's what faithfulness look like? Be faithful. This is often going to mean making hard choices to train, sacrifice, learn when no one's looking, when there's no promise of a payoff. But there is in Scripture a promise of a payoff, and it is, well done, good and faithful servant. The last mental hook, faithfulness is being a thermostat, not merely a thermometer. Thermometers measure temps, thermostats set it. Thermometers change or reflect the environment, thermostats change the environment. Now, if you're an engineer, I understand thermostats don't warm your house. They have to be connected to a, a heat source. So don't get lost. The, uh, uh, an analogy is not designed to be scientifically accurate. It's designed to be memorable. And you change that thermostat, and that thermostat changes the climate. A, a thermometer just measures it. And this is closely tied to the first point of play to an audience of one. But here I'm zeroing in on how do we live in hostile cultures. It could be at the macro level maybe with an increasing hostile American culture, or you're in Iran or China, or maybe at the micro level, a hostile classroom or living room or office. How do we live in and not of culture faithfully? Years ago, a pastor named Niebuhr wrote a book about Christ above, Christ below, Christ in culture, and culture meaning the world. And Christ above culture doesn't mean Christ is above culture, but he's talking about Christ out of, retreating, Christians retreating from the world because they're afraid to be overtaken by it. They're fearful of it, so they flee from it. And these are three approaches the church has taken. Isolating ourselves as best we can from its negative influence, that's Christ above or out of. And in Christ below is where the church capitulates to the world. We can't beat them, let's just join them. Like the Pope's recent capitulation to same-sex relationships in a desire to remain relevant. The right approach is to be in but not of the world, Christ in culture. And that's the model we have in Daniel and better yet in Jesus himself. And this is not easy. The Bible wouldn't talk so much about it if it was easy. And you're likely to make enemies on all sides, but it is the way of Christ. So here's what Jesus said in John 17. The world hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So in that, in that passage, you see... Um, Christ below of the world you see Christ out of the world above culture and then you have the biblical model 
They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So how do we survive here in but not of the world? So one last analogy. A deep sea diver can go into the deep and withstand tremendous water pressure. They're not just getting oxygen. The old helmet divers, bell divers, they're not just getting oxygen, but they're also keep from being crushed by the pressure of that suit. Having this connection, a life source that's outside the ocean itself. Humans can't breathe water. They can't withstand those pressures unless they have something outside that environment, that environment they weren't made to live in, pumping life into them. And this is where we started this short series, Biblical Intake. Truth is absolutely necessary. We leak perspective. We have to have a constant inflow. But we actually have to have all three key resources to live faithfully in but not of the world. We have to have God's Word, God's people, and God's Spirit. If we stop getting biblical intake, if we disconnect from biblical community, if through unconfessed sin we disconnect from God's Spirit, we're not going to be able to survive the pressures of life in this world. And I've called this series, Don't Try to Change the World, Just Be Faithful. And my wording was more about the focal point. We're to focus on faithfulness, and that is how the world has changed. But changing the world in some grand way is not our concern. Faithfulness is. And a thermostat is designed to change the room temperature, not merely measure it or be changed by it. And we can be people who are able to set the climate wherever we go. And again, we need to die to these grand delusions of world change and then miss the opportunity just to set the climate of the room that we're in. And this comes through consistently, faithfully being plugged into the resources of God. His word, his people, and his spirit. So let me give a, a word on biblical community. Daniel was misunderstood and often isolated. But the Bible says Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were his friends. And if everybody else was against him, his people and the Babylonian politicians, and he had these three battle buddies who shared his courage of conviction, that was enough. And you have a circle. You have, and it may be a small one. That's really all it takes to live with courage. You say, well, all I need is a relationship with God. That would be true if God would put up with that. He just doesn't. He's designed you where you have to have people live in community. And it could be a small, but that's really all it takes. And then maybe there are still those who dislike you or judge you. Maybe there are those who misunderstand and misrepresent you. Sometimes we pay way too much attention to that one person who is against us, and we forget the people who have our back. You know, you don't need the whole world to like you. You certainly don't need the world wide web to love you. You'll be fine if you have the love of God and the love of a friend or two. So as we end this short series, consider this. Do you feel like you're on the shelf? Do you feel set aside, underutilized? It's been said that God, everyone God uses, he puts on the shelf for a time to deepen them. And sometimes, often, most people spend a couple of periods of time set aside. And these times on the shelf are followed by times of much greater activity and involvement. But it can be difficult to stay content on the shelf. And it can be difficult to be proactive during these white space times to seek God and grow in preparation for what's next. Maybe you're in a busy and active period of life and you'd like a little shelf time. That sounds great to you. Be sure that you're content and faithful in whatever time of life God has put you in, whether it's on the shelf or in a very active, active busy time of life. Don't let the busyness distract you from the real business of being faithful. God doesn't need you. 
He's not super excited that you're finally out there in action. He wants you to be faithful. If you feel like you're on the shelf, set aside and unused, will you be faithful? Will you serve God in whatever ways God provides now? Will you proactively seek greater depth of relationship with God during this time? If your life is busy, will you refuse to be distracted from the core purpose of your life, which is be faithful? Don't waste any season of life that God has you in. And in this room, there, are, there is summer, spring, fall, winter going on. And just like the seasons of the calendar have their purpose, the different seasons of your life all have their purpose. And your calling in all of them is not to begrudge God, it's to be faithful. Hunt the good stuff in the season you're in right now. Let's pray together. You talk to God about where he has you. Ask him to help you be found faithful.